Hello and welcome to the July 2016 edition of Organising to Win, the monthly trade union podcast from Unison Northwest. My name is James Bull and this month we'll feature an interview with American trade unionist, Nation magazine columnist and academic Jane McAlevey and speak to a group of Unison Northwest activists who've won a major campaign recently to bring privatised ambulance services back into the National Health Service and increase levels of union membership at the same time. If you want to find out about either of these things in a bit more detail, you can head over to our website at www.unisonnw.org forward slash podcast for further information and links and resources associated with this month's programme. Jay McAlevey is the former organising director of the SEIU, the largest public sector trade union in the United States. She's an organiser, an academic and a regular contributor to The Nation magazine. Her book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, My Decade Fating for the Labour Movement, published in 2012, describes Jane's journey organising workers in low-density, union-hostile employers where she was able to achieve incredible success by employing the organising model, transforming low-membership branches into high-density, active and campaigning workforces which went on to win improvements in paying conditions. She's been a major contributor to the debate on the importance of employing the organising model in trade unions across the globe, and we were very lucky to have her with us at this year's Skills for Strength organising convention in March. After she delivered a workshop, Kevin Lucas asked her about how organising methods were able to build union organisation in parts of the US against a pattern of decline, and how unions can organise well in 2016. So, Jane, in your book, Raising Expectations, you describe a number of huge wins for workers in America that were amazing both for their scale, uh, but also for the pace within which they were achieved. Can you just outline to us, I mean, what, what did you do? How did you achieve that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I think a key thing is that they did actually happen very, very quickly. Um, and here's, here's what I think the key steps are to it. What we've come to understand in the United States of America uh, where things are far from perfect, by the way. Um, but in those unions that are still winning, what we've come to understand are a handful of key methods. Um, the first is that everything revolves around whether or not we can build what we call a very strong worksite structure. Everything revolves around the ability of our members and the workers who are in the workplace who need to become members. Everything revolves around their ability to develop something called a very strong worksite structure, which is how we test whether or not we've actually built any power in the workplace. So um, what does that look like? All right, so a worksite structure means that we've got 90% um, of all possible workers who could be in unison in this case actually in the union. And when I say that, some people will probably roll their eyes and they go, oh my goodness, 90%. Because, of course, in almost every workplace, whether it's in the United States or in Britain here or in Canada where I've been doing some work, when we start to do this work, uh, our, our membership numbers are quite a bit lower than that. Let's just leave it that way, right? So, um, but, uh, we, so we start with an aspirational campaign. We start by asking people, look, what is it, if you could change three things at work, Every worker has an answer to that question. If we walk into a worksite and we say, um, got any issues here? 
It's a really different question than if I'm sitting down with a worker one-on-one and I say to that worker, you're Kevin. Hey, Kevin, it's really great to meet you. Look, if, if you can make three things change in this workplace tomorrow, what would that be? So the beginning of the foundation of building a strong worksite structure is that we actually have to have a lot of face-to-face conversations, one-on-one conversations, where all we're going to simply do is ask each worker what really matters most to them. We make a mistake sometimes when we assume we know what matters to workers. So one of the key steps to building a strong worksite structure is a lot of face-to-face conversations, very open-ended, but crucial is that we begin to learn what matters to each and every worker. We can't actually persuade workers not yet in the union to join the union if they don't understand for what purpose should they join. Uh, Forget about whether or not it's the right thing to do. Most folks listening to this will think it's just the right thing to do because we're already union activists. Well, of course, we think it's the right thing to do. The problem is not everyone's with us. And the only way to bring them is to actually ask them what matters the most to them and then help them understand that they can't achieve any of the things that they want to achieve in the workplace unless and until we build much stronger unions than we have today. So we start by asking people, and then the next most important uh, thing we have to do is do what we call identifying something called the organic leader. The organic leader is the person in each and every work area, in each and every workplace, not just one person per workplace, like a big hostel where I've done a lot of work. We'll have many, many of them in a big facility. Um, Every single work area and every shift, there's one or two workers. And by the way, I want to be very clear about this. They're often not yet in the union, but there's usually one or two workers who are very particularly unusually influential among their coworkers. And they're influential about things at work. They tend to be workers who are seen by management as being very good workers. They tend to be workers who are so good at the job that they individually seem to get a lot of what they need day in and day out from their manager and their employer. Um, And they're very often workers who are not talking to us. So as trade unionists, whether we're stewards, whether we're activists in the workplace, whether we're a worksite contact or whether we're full-time staff, we all err, I argue, because when we go to a facility, we talk to the workers who want to talk to us. And the truth is, we're not yet a full majority union. And until we're at 90% of everyone in the union, until we're at 90% strong, um, we can't win on the kind of things that workers really want to win on right now, which is increased staff, reduced workload, reduced stress, all the things that are happening as a result of austerity, right? Our workers all over the world are experiencing longer days, harder days, more stressful days, and a lot of that's because of the cuts, and a lot of that's because of austerity. So we have for us to get strong enough to beat that stuff back and make the workplace pleasant, a pleasant place to spend our day again, we've got to spend front-end time investing in a lot of face-to-face conversations that help us understand who are those one or two people in each work area who actually have super influence on their coworkers. And again, they're not usually in the union. And once we can persuade them to get involved in the union, once we can make the time to figure out what matters to them, there's got to be some self-interest, some reason why they want to come in. And we're not going to be able to probably persuade them to come in unless, unless and until, one, we know who they are, Uh, And two, until we can identify a set of issues 
that matter to them that can only change by building a strong union. And last I looked, that issue very commonly these days is making our services better, uh, having more staff so we can get the work done better, having really great outcomes for patients if we're in a hospital, having terrific well-run services if we're in a school or childcare or the kids getting educated or the school bus is running on time or fill in the blanks. Everything is getting harder and worse right now because of austerity. So I would say we have to build very strong worksite structures the key to building worksite structures are being very patient in a lot of face-to-face -face conversations to figure out who that most influential one or two workers is per shift per work area, and then really investing in how can we help recruit that person, how can we help bring them in, and here's why. Once we do, they tend, if they are really influential, they tend to then be able to bring all the rest of the workers in their work area into the union with them. And not just into the union, but into collective action, into taking the kind of actions it's going to take at the voting booth, potentially in a massive strike, whatever it is, we need a lot more people and a lot more power to push back against the Tory agenda, to push back against the austerity cuts, which, by the way, is bipartisan in your country last I looked. It happened under all kinds of governments, and it's true in the U.S. too. It happens worse under some governments than others. But right now, uh, workers in the working class are taking it in the neck. Uh, and for us to build the kind of power that's required to push back on the awful cuts taking place and on our, our quality of life, we have to be patient, have face-to-face -face conversations, identify the influential worker leaders, recruit them by understanding what matters most to them, uh, and then we begin to stand a chance of building really strong worksite power. And by worksite power, I mean 90% of all the workers in a workplace in the union acting collectively. Yeah, I mean, that, that's amazing. And uh, I mean, when I, I read your book, frankly, if it had just been a theoretical book, I probably wouldn't have carried on reading because I wouldn't have believed it was possible. But it's not, is it? It's based on your actual real life experiences, what's been achieved. Um, and I think something else that really struck me was not only in terms of the level of density and, and level of activism you build, but then how you go about testing it, testing yeah. it to make sure you're ready for that major action. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, you know, we spend all this front end attention, front end energy trying to figure out who are these influential workers? How can we recruit them? That's the beginning steps, right? What matters to them? Face to face conversations. Uh, all the stuff, by the way, that I just saw written up in the terrific uh, pamphlet that Unison's put out about, you know, how do you build a sort of stronger work area. Um, so the, the basics are here, I know that. But what we do next is we take a very important next step too, which is once we think we've got those influential workers, we begin to do, and this is all very open conversation, of course, with all the workers, we begin to say, look, we've got to figure out, is the work site really strong? And is it really nimble? And is our communication system really good? And we do that by doing something we call structure tests. Uh, some people call them stress tests. Uh, you know, I don't want to be stressed out, so I call them structure tests. We've got to build a strong worksite structure. Um, we'll, we'll start with something like a petition. And we'll say to the workers in a very open conversation, um, we need to get 90% of all the workers on this petition. And the petition might say, stop the cuts to NHS. Or the petition might say, we need fully funded schools. Or the petition might say something that's going to resonate with lots of workers, with all, even if they're not members yet. We want to even get 90% of the workers on a petition that's about a better future of some kind in the workplace or for the services. Um, and then we'll say, go get 90% of all the workers in every work area and every shift in your facility on this petition. Uh, and right then, we'll start to figure out how strong our worksite communication is and how strong our worksite structure is. Because if it takes people mm, four weeks, five weeks, 
six weeks or seven weeks, which it can in the beginning, uh, to get 90% of people signing a petition about something that all the workers, you know, are in favor of. Uh, I'll then say to the workers, okay, well, that's a good start, but really we're pretty weak. Um, and we need to get a worksite structure so tight, and we test it and test it and test it by doing these things like petitions, um, until the workers can actually turn around what we call a supermajority petition, that's hand-signed, not through the internet, a supermajority petition has 90% of signatures on it, and they can turn it around in 48 hours. And we say to workers, when your worksite structure is so tight that we've got all the right people in place who can get 90% of the workers to sign a solidarity petition on an issue that matters to them, and they can do that in 48 hours, we are ready to push back on the Tories, save our services, and frankly, retake control of our country. And you know it can be done because you've done it. Yeah, we've done it for sure, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, th I think your point about is it theoretical or not is really great. And I think sometimes when we talk only in theoretical, I mean, part of why I wrote the book the way I wrote it was because I've read too many theoretical books that frankly made no sense to me um, or where I didn't really understand it. Or And the, the point about writing that book and just telling lots of stories about workers who were previously feeling down and out, who were previously pretty weak in terms of their worksite structure, if not very weak, who felt demoralized, who felt rolled over by management and the politicians around them. The point of starting with a lot of stories about how quickly they built to powerful unions is because it really can happen. And there really is a method to the madness that works. And a step we miss, even if we're doing face-to-face, -face, I mean, a lot of unions sort of get we need to do face-to-face, one-on-one. Okay, great. What's that look like? But we don't then understand the concept of constantly structure testing until our structure is actually proven it's strong enough and ready enough to take on a big fight and win. Because it's when workers have their first big victory that they watch out because they are then ready to start rolling on really big campaigns. Once they get a sense of the fact that they actually are powerful, when they stand united and they're uh, in solidarity with each other, you know, uh, that's how we won all these laws to begin with a long time ago, and that's how we're going to push back on the Tories and frankly, all of the governments, and win back what the working class deserves in our countries. That was Jane McAlevey. On the 1st of July this year, we celebrate the return of the Greater Manchester Patient Transport Service to the NHS. It was in late 2012 that the NHS commissioners shocked everyone by taking the contract off of the then NHS provider, Northwest Ambulance Service, and handing it to the private transport company, Arriva Transport Solutions Limited. We campaigned hard against that decision, but ultimately the contract was awarded and Arriva run the service since April 2013. That is until today, when we see it successfully return to the NHS provider, the Northwest Ambulance Service. The Unison NWest branch, and in particular the workplace reps who transferred from NWest to Arriva, have done a tremendous job over the previous three years in defending the NHS terms and conditions of those Unison members who transferred with the service, and have successfully organised new members within this private sector two-tier workforce environment. And ultimately, they have led the campaign that has seen the patient transport service take back out of the private hands and return to the NHS. I spoke to the senior Unison workplace reps Dave Ward and Paul Flynn about what they had achieved and what lessons can be learned. Okay, so can we start with you both introducing yourselves? Yeah, hi. My name's David Ward. I've probably been um, a Unison steward for the past 10 to 12 years. 
Uh, I work for the PTS service, which is the patient transport services, which are generic across the country with NHS establishments to move your mum, your dad in and out of hospital to um, help to alleviate bed blocking in hospitals by moving discharges, etc. We don't deal with urgent or emergency cases. We just deal with the run of the mill uh, patients that need to go in and out for uh, standard appointments in general. I'm Paul Flynn, I'm the HSL Unison Convener from Oldham Base. So the, uh, the PTS service that you just described, Dave, that uh, traditionally has always been within the Northwest Ambulance Service here, here in Manchester, but in April 2013, um, the NHS commissioners decided to outsource it to, to a private provider. So for the last three years, you've, you've been working for who, Dave? Yeah, for the past three years, we've been working for a company called Arriva Transport Solutions, um, known as ATSL. Um, it was quite a shock to go through the Tupi situation and be transferred from being an NHS employee to working for a private company who were to supply the same services themselves. And I remember at the time we were, we, well, we campaigned very strongly against, against the outsourcing for a start, didn't we, Paul? Yeah, we did, yeah. Theresa Griffiths was uh, our regional officer then, and she campaigned vigorously for us and to keep our NHS pension rights as well. Yeah. And although we were successful in keeping the pension rights, the, um, the, the, the staff did have to transfer over to, to Arriva. And I remember at the time there was a, there was a lot of fear about what we, what we might lose uh, through our members, through the staff moving over to a private provider. Could you just talk us through a little bit about that? What were the main concerns of, of Unison members at the time? We were most concerned about the recognition. We thought we were going to a private provider that wouldn't recognise the union uh, per se. We've encountered loads of robust management techniques that we'd never seen before, early, do early doors. But uh, we've managed to overcome that through the trade union successes itself. Yeah. Uh, again, I remember at the time, so we were, we were worried about not being able to retain the agenda for change, terms and conditions for, for our current staff. Um, we were worried about being able to recruit and organise within the new staff that Arriva were going to take on. Um, and and we were, we were worried about the loss of union organisation. And, and I suppose we were scared, really, that this was an irreversible uh, privatisation of the ambulance service here in the northwest, or at least the start of it. Would you say that's fair, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest fear from the transferred staff from Northwest Ambulance Service to Arriva was the fact that everybody had it in their head that Arriva wouldn't want to keep us on our pay rate and they would do their utmost to get rid of many of us as possible so they could bring new staff in on the lowest possible wages to make their profitability better and pay the shareholders, etc., etc. Uh, thankfully, the fears weren't realised um, you know, we've gone for three years, three months working with a private company where our terms and conditions of employment and our union recognition have never been at jeopardy at all. Um, if anything, we've improved our situation dramatically with uh, under Arriva as a private company. I'm not saying everything's been perfect. There's certainly been a lot of scary periods and they were a harsher uh, draconian employer. Um, but hey-ho, we're here at the end of it and going back to Northwest Amulet Service, thankfully. Yeah, and you go back on the 1st of July this year, 20, 2016, um, and you're going back having successfully defended all your NHS terms and conditions for those staff that transferred three years ago, including the pensions, as we, as we said. You managed to, in the early days, you managed to secure full recognition, unison recognition for those newly recruited staff to ATSL, which was a, uh, which was a massive victory for us. And, uh, and very early on, you used that to secure quite a big pay rise for those staff. Do you want to tell us about that, Paul? 
Yeah, we've achieved a pay rise over three years that qualified at about 17% at the time. Uh, it was tied into some conditions, which we eventually whittled away the conditions as well. So it was a conditional pay rise. Uh, so they've enjoyed that now. They've got moved from minimum pay to something like £8.50 an hour now, which is a massive improvement on what they were on initially. Absolutely, and I think partly as a result of that, we can see not only did um, the union organisation within uh, within uh, the PCS not um, decrease and decline during this time of review, but actually you've strengthened it. And whereas it's a staffing of about 400, the, the PCS staff here in Greater Manchester, and about 200 of those were in unison membership when we transferred over, we're now transferring back over 300 mm. unison members, mm. which is a, a, an incredible testament to yourselves. Um, but also in terms of organisation, you transferred over with about with about three workplace reps, I believe. And how many have you got now, Dave? Uh, approximately 15 reps. And, and I think at the end of the day, because myself, Helen Marriott and Paul, who were the senior stewards that moved across from Northwest Ambulance Service, were professional within our approach to Areva. And we've always encouraged other people, if you've got a beef, come and join the union, come and be, become a rep and have your say. And, and I think because we've, we've had that support from staff, and we've been able to uh, encourage people to become reps. So we're approximately 15 stewards now, which is amazing, and, and it's really good considering we really only came across with four. Well, one thing that really impressed me about, about the union's work here, led by yourselves, is um, the way in which you've always managed to keep members and potential members informed of, of all your successes and all your wins. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of that's down to Dave. Dave's a great communicator, as you can hear. Uh, but he's good on paper as well, so we do advertise any successes we've got. Mm. We've... We're good at preparation as well. Before we came over, when we came over, we met with other places, other unions and stewards who'd been taken over by private companies, in mm. particular in the East Midlands with the ACSL staff there. Mm. And we learned a lot from their failings. So it's not all down to us. I mean, it's the family, the union family that helps us through there. Yeah. And ultimately, you've all had a part in, um, in making sure the contract goes back to MWAS. I mean, there was a big big unison campaign wasn't there which um, although you weren't involved in during work time obviously um, <laughs> that, that our colleagues within the NWAS branch were very heavily involved in Indeed, were you you know um, health branches and local government branches up and down the country were involved in getting those uh, postcards delivered to the commissioner from from patients and from user groups and from other other interested uh, members of the community to argue that uh, the private sector wasn't the right place for, for any part of the NHS and it should be returned back to NWAS and ultimately Dave that was successful. Yeah absolutely I mean in the early days when we ha found out we were being privatised to Arriva Transport Solutions we did um, a lobby of parliament uh, we took a coach load of people down to London and tried to lobby our local MPs and got as much support as we possibly could and certainly the same thing when the uh, tupi tender came up again after the three-year term of contract was ending we tried again to mobilize a campaign but discreetly and covertly because obviously we were working for that employer that we didn't want to stay with particularly um, but yeah we were heavily involved in trying to um, persuade the Joe Public, who uses the service, that they were getting a lesser quality service to some reg in some regards, and that going back to the ambulance service would be the preferred choice for them. So we're told all the time that it's difficult to organise within the private sector, that it's too fragmented, that the management are too aggressive, that we don't get the same time off rights, all these different challenges and barriers, and we're told that we can't do it. And yet over the last three years, you've achieved 
very significant pay increases for your private sector members. You've increased the union membership by about 50% and raised the density significantly. You've increased the number of stewards and people active in the branch um, by an incredible amount. And ultimately, you're going back to MWAS. We're returning that, that service to, to, to the NHS, and you're doing so with a stronger union than you had three years ago. So um, what, Dave, would be your, uh, your top tip for other union activists who are, who are faced with organising within the private private sector at the end of the day you've got to realize uh, you need activists within your branch you need to engage with your stewards you need to make sure that they're totally involved in the project and and where you ultimately would like to be with your goals uh, so communication's key obviously and that's something that, that a lot of us say blase we just say oh yeah we've got to improve communications I, i'm a strong believer in it um it still doesn't work 100 percent um at the moment we do our best to communicate and as Paul indicated before you know we try to sell ourselves from the point of view that I, I will issue a newsletter in agreement with the other senior stewards to say these are the these are the successes we've achieved on behalf of our members and I think that's vital that they are well informed that you are there you are fighting in their corner because the majority of the time they don't realize they don't know about the secret meetings well they're not necessarily secret but the the meetings that you having with management and where you're arguing and banging your fist on the table in regards to their rights, they're not aware of that. And you need to tell your members and, and fully be in communication with all your members with newsletters, etc. And so a couple of weeks time, we'll be back at NOS. Paul, what's the next challenge? Is it full agenda for change pay for everyone who, who transfers over? It's got to be. It's got to be parity for everybody. Don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to have a good go. We're coming out of here fighting and we're going to stay fighting. Well, that's all we've time for this month, but if you've enjoyed the programme and not yet subscribed to us on iTunes or your Android or Windows phone podcast app, why not have a quick search for Organising to Win and hit subscribe to ensure you keep up to date with all the latest episodes and get access to all our previous episodes too. If that's not enough to keep you going though, you can head over to our website at www.unisonnw.org forward slash podcast for access to a host of links and resources related to this month's programme. Or also get in touch with us if you'd like to get involved in the production of future episodes or you've got a question or comment for us or if you'd like to tell us about a campaign in your area which we could feature in the programme in future. But for now, thanks very much for listening. Now, if you want to find out more about uh, Jane McAlevey's organising work, you can find articles that she's written as well as links to other podcast interviews and media appearances at her website at janemcalevey.com, which is J-A-N-E-M-C-A-L-E-V-E-Y.com. And uh, she's also uh, writing a new book at the moment called non- No Shortcuts, Organising for Power in the New Gilded Age, uh, which argues that the meaningful change can only happen when organising... Um, uh, approaches put ordinary people at the centre of their own struggle so there's no shortcuts to lasting social change that's going to be released at the end of October 2016 and is available for pre-order now from Oxford University Press